Hey everyone, welcome to Indie Film Grid, a podcast about indie films and indie filmmakers. I am your host, Timothy Patrick, but you, you can call me Tim. In this episode, I'm joined by Jeffrey Michael Bays. He's also known as the Hitchcock Whisperer. Jeffrey is an indie filmmaker and also an author. We talk about his filmmaking journey, his web series, Hitch 20, and all things related to Alfred Hitchcock. Let's get into it. And here we are with Jeffrey Michael Bays. Jeffrey. Thanks for being on the podcast, man. How are you? Hey, I'm good. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure, man. Uh, so much to talk to you about. Uh, I'm excited to talk about all the things you've done uh, in the world of filmmaking. Um, you know, writing books, uh, making your own films. But be- before we go too deep into that, could you give us just a little background about yourself? Uh, how you got into filmmaking? Well, that's, uh, that goes a long way back. That goes back to, uh, I guess when I was 10 years old, um, nice. Cause my parents bought a, a video camcorder. Uh, and this was back when it was VHS, you know, so it was the big cassette. Mm. <laughs> um, oh, nice. Uh, and, uh, I was about 10 and of course that was the thing that I wanted to experiment with, you know, um, because they weren't using it. <laughs> for some reason I don't know they bought it and then they didn't use it but so at 10 years old I was doing like um stop motion animation uh with Legos and uh I, th- I think nice. you, you had done something like that similarly too didn't you um yeah and actually uh I call it stop motion but uh that's giving me too much credit <laughs> but I it was, it was an attempt it was an attempt at, at stop motion but uh, that's cool, man. Legos. I was never a big Lego guy, but I've stepped on tons of them. <laughs> so, well, the, the the most fun thing I did with that is that I actually, uh, I did one of those with my, um, the sheets and pillows on my bed actually making itself. Uh, so it's a, Ooh. it's a messed up bed. And so the sheets arrange and the bed is made by itself and the pillows get into a fight over who goes first so it's like it's it's this really cool thing i did i don't know how i did it um that's great so early on i was like i was all into special effects and and trying to do you know tricks with the camera and um Mm -hmm. at one point i was uh I was doing because I was really big into Star Trek at the time. So I was uh, trying to do the transporter beam. Ooh, Um, that's ambitious. Yeah. And uh, didn't I didn't have a dissolve feature. So because, you know, this is way back in, uh, you know, just a Panasonic VHS camcorder. But yeah, I mean, uh, so I was doing the transporter effect and uh, realized because I had to make it. It was cuts. So you cut to the. Uh, you know, the, um, what I had was, uh, <laughs> some kind of a kitchen Tupperware thing with sprink- sparkles in it with water. <laughs> and, uh, so I'd stir it up and then put Ooh, it in front nice. of the camera, press record and then stop and then take it away. And, 
And so then it would cut to, you know, the nothingness. And so I realized that the, the way to make that uh, seem more fluid is to use sound. Uh, so using the music of the transporter beam sound from mm. for all three takes. Now, how did you figure out the sparkles in the water? Because well, <laughs> that's because amazing. I'd, well, because I had seen that on TV. Because they had a behind the scenes of uh, uh, the Next Generation Star Trek show, mm. and that's how they did it. So of course, I had to try it out. So <laughs> that's awesome and ambitious and. Yeah. Uh, was the younger self uh, impressed with himself? Um, yeah, I don't. I probably not. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see it as a big deal, you know. Yeah, it was just uh, you know something to have fun with. And at the same time, I was doing uh, things on audio cassette too, because I, I did a lot of voices and I was doing radio parodies um, when I was you know around that age, like twelve, thirteen, mm-hmm. and. Uh, so I did a lot of audio cassette stuff too. So while while most kids were out playing, you know, uh, playing baseball in the summer, I was at home <laughs> with a cassette recorder. <laughs> I'm with you, man. Yeah. I mean, you know, often, especially when I'm doing the podcast, I think about I, I had a a, a two tape deck, uh, you know, ghetto blaster basically back in the day. And, you know, you could uh, record on to one another. And I would interview Roger Rabbit via <laughs> a, uh, a tape of Roger Rabbit talking. I'd ask, I'd set up questions and then I'd, you know, switch in his his answer. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's exactly what I was doing. So I was doing call-in shows. Like I, I would do the voices of the callers oh. and then I would record those on one tape and then I would play those back. And then with the pause button, I would, you know, set it up. Yeah. And then I'd be the host and then I'd react <laughs> to the calls. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. I love it. Yeah. So after your radio career, uh, where did you head from there? Um, well, you say career, so. <laughs> well, I'm joking because you were interviewing <laughs> yourself on the radio. Yes. You know, you know. Well, it actually did turn into a radio thing for in college. So, uh, Oh, cool. Actually, I did do radio for a while. Nice. Um. And um, it was kind of poetic in a way because I actually ended up hosting the show that I was uh, that I was pretending to uh, to do right. as a kid. So, like when I was about you know late twenties, I was uh, I was I happened to be working at this local station and, and doing the same talk show that I was imitating. <laughs> That's so many incredible. Years before. Yeah. Wow. So kind of full circle. Yeah. Now, what show was that? You want to give them a shout out? Well, it was a local. It was, it was a local uh, small town radio station. It was a. They called it Swap Shop, where uh, people would call in with items they want to sell. So it was kind of like a classified, kind of a thing. Classified ads. When was that? Was that in college? That was when I did the show. Um, that was after college. Um, I think no, yeah, it was right after college. It was before I moved to Australia, because um, because I did this uh, this radio play during college called Not from Space, and uh, and that ended up just unexpectedly it was picked up nationally by XM Satellite Radio. Oh wow! And so that became a big deal. Um, it was right after college. And so I decided uh, 
I decided to go into filmmaking at that point. Um, the reason I didn't do film early on um, is because I was in a small town and uh, it, radio was local. And uh, so that's just what I happened to get into. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still had that that drive to uh, to get back to the camera and uh, yeah, you know, start doing more things. But uh, so you actually, well, you have a, your master's in in film. Is that right? Yeah, a master's. Uh, it's uh, in cinema. So this is more of the film theory mm-hmm. side of things. So after. After I uh, directed my first feature film, um, I decided to get a master's and, uh, and, and study film theory because I had already done the production side of it. So mm-hmm. I, wanted to get a, I wanted to go into the film theory side of things. So that's a completely different world. Yeah. Uh, and, and one that you excel at. I mean, not many people are called the Hitchcock Whisperer. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, well, that's what it says on my book. So I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if that's true or not. But uh, every time I would do something Hitchcock related, um, it, it would get a lot of attention because it, it, it turns out that filmmakers uh, uh, really like Hitchcock uh-huh. and really want to know his tricks and uh, uh, how he did things. Uh, it started out as a hobby. I started comp- compiling techniques and things that, that I had found in his works and uh, that he had talked about in his interviews. And uh, so over the years, I kind of developed these kind of simplified tricks and techniques that he used. And I started teaching them to other filmmakers. That's awesome. So, yeah, over time, I just uh, it turned into a book. Uh, that book is called Suspense with a Camera, uh, which is an apt title. Yeah, definitely. Because uh, when when you think about everything that Hitchcock did, it all boils down to that, that he was good at creating suspense with a camera. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a lot of people probably know about the vertigo effect, you know, the, the dolly zoom shot. And, you know, maybe kids today don't even know it came from Hitchcock because it's it's become such a it, it's just become another word in the language of film. At this point. Yeah. Could you touch on that uh, first feature film you you directed? (laughs) Yes. Now, uh, that's Offing David. Offing David. All right. Uh, Right. And that is, it's, it's a, it's kind of an homage to Hitchcock. So, um, so right out of the box, my first film, I wanted to, um, I wanted to try out all these, these techniques uh, that I'd been reading about, um, because there's a book called, uh, uh, well, it's, it's an interview book by Francois Truffaut where he interviews Hitchcock. Um, it's one of the, uh, it was done in the sixties. It was one of the quintessential interviews that Hitchcock ever did. He basically, um, went through each of his films and talked about them. So he talked about technique and, you know, that here's how I did things. And so that has been the one interview that everybody goes to. So I read this through college. And so I was just taking notes and I was fascinated by all this. Um, so when I, you know, when I got the chance to direct a film that, you know, I, I was, that's what I was doing. I was, uh, essentially, um, not necessarily imitating him so much, but, uh, 
uh, trying to put his advice to work, you know? Mm-hmm. And how, you, you said you made this while you were in Australia. Right, yeah. So how did yeah. you get to Australia? Well, uh, <laughs> that was just, um, I just took a flying leap uh, and decided to do that. Um, I like it. Yeah, <laughs> I guess <laughs> I guess I wanted to get as far away from, from the United States as possible. Uh, well, see, that's the funny thing. Uh, there was a, a, a teacher I had in college in film class. Uh, he was a Hollywood producer, and then he became a teacher. Hmm. And he said to us, he said, um, if you want to succeed, get as far away from Hollywood as possible. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, That's why I'm doing uh, it wrong, man. I'm smack dab yeah. in the middle. Because <laughs> you're right there. Yeah. But yeah, I can appreciate that you get to uh, actually experience life. Yeah. And, and you know, it, it so happens that uh, I was... Uh, I was on internet chatting a lot back then. Mm-hmm. It was it was IRC uh, and, and it was uh, Star Trek fan groups and things like that. So nice. I ended up uh, with all these Star Trek uh, fan friends uh, in Australia. I, I don't know how that happened. Mm-hmm. Um, so we decided to uh, get together and make a film. Um, and surprisingly, it wasn't a... Star Trek fan film, which kind of looking <laughs> back at it, that would have made sense. Um, but, uh, but no, we, we just did this, uh, little, uh, kind of suspense thriller called Offing David. It took, uh, took about four years all the way through. It took about a year to shoot it and then three years in post-production. Wow. And, uh, I imagine and, you were, uh, you were the one calling the shots being that, uh, it's so Hitchcock involved. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. But I was only 26 at the time. Hmm. And, um, I probably looked about 16. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, so yeah, there was always kind of a, what does this kid know? You know? Mm -hmm. Um, but they had, they did have a respect because they knew that I knew what I was doing. They could tell that I knew. Um, and then, of course, once they saw the film, they they realized, yeah, this is this is pretty cool. You know, Hitchcock, the camera moves a lot. The camera is is almost the audience. Well, it is the audience in a lot of ways. But uh, did you did you try and pull off like uh, the vertigo effect and uh, you know various sweeping moves and whatnot? Didn't use the vertigo effect, uh, but there is a tracking shot. Yeah, nice. in, a, in a key moment. Yeah. Very cool. So you are obsessed with Hitchcock. <laughs> yeah, I guess you could say that. <laughs> but I think, but I think I'm, I'm more obsessed about you know trying to figure out what he did and how he did it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and and you don't stop at his films either. Uh, you dove deep into his television career. Yeah, yeah, because he uh, he directed 20 episodes of television. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't realize that because the Alfred Hitchcock presents hundreds of episodes, uh, but they're directed by other people. Mm. Is it all his show or is he like, did he direct Murder, She Wrote or something? You know what I mean? Oh, uh, well, uh, 17 of them were his show. Oh, OK. Um, there were two others that were kind of spinoff series mm. that were other series that that his company was also producing. Cool. So, yeah. So you did a a hard look at uh, his work in television 
And and you made a web series. Yes, did make a web series called Hitch 20 um, and still producing that, by the way. Um, uh, We're doing one episode per episode. So there's going to be 20 episodes uh, by the end of it. That's uh, each look at all of those 20 episodes that he produced. Very cool. Interesting, too. Yeah. I can't remember if this is Hitchcock or somebody else, but did he remake uh, films that he himself had made in the silent era? Yeah, he did one. Um, he did? Okay. Yeah, The Man Who Knew Too Much was uh, a black and white British film, and he redid that in the 50s, I think. Uh, same title. And the same basic story, but it's a lot different. And it, it's always an interesting uh, study because you can see his progression um, in the 20 year span. Right. Uh, or 30 years, however long it was. But um, 39 Steps is also another British film. Uh, and it's very similar to North by Northwest. They're not, mm. they're not the same stories, but there's a lot of parallels. Um, in fact, a lot of his films have a lot of similarities, but, uh, Mm -hmm. that's the only remake he's actually done. It's pretty cool to remake yourself. Yeah. Now, is that because he was, uh, so involved in, in the silent movie era, um, that, that the, the visual part of his, his films stick out so much? Yeah, that's exactly why, uh, he started in the silent film era and uh, he was actually, he was in the right place at the right time um, because he had influences from, and this was in the 1920s, right? So this is like early, very early film. Uh, and so the Germans were doing film and the Russians were doing film and the Americans, and they all had different styles um, because they were all experimenting, you know, with this new, right. new form. And uh, so he had, he just happened to be um, in London. He was like 21 years old and Paramount opened up a studio uh, right down the street. Oh, nice. And so uh, he would walk down and, and watch and eventually introduced himself and, and offered to help. And uh, so uh, he ended up getting a job with this film group. And so he learned from the Americans, which at the time they were uh, doing a lot of editing. They were doing close-ups because it was, uh, you know, D.W. Griffin um, uh, had figured out that you can do cross-cutting and you can do close-ups uh, because a lot of people, uh, I know this sounds strange, but... They didn't think that the human mind could contemplate, could actually, uh, uh, could uh, make sense of a cut to a close-up. Yeah, it's bizarre. They they were they were writing the language of film, right? Exactly. Right? Yeah. So editing was super important to Hitchcock from the beginning. It sounds like. Yeah, for sure, and that was before sound came along. So when you start to add sound, he uh, he directed the first. Uh, uh, British film with sound. And so mm. he was experimenting every possible way he could. And uh, his first film, sound film, Blackmail, was, it's, it's really fun to go back and watch that because there's so many experiments with any possible thing you can do with sound. <laughs> and yeah. silence, too, by the way. Uh, he mm. um, Because movies before that, um, they had music 
through the whole film, whole film because uh, that's just how they uh, did it in the theater. They would show the silent film, but they would have like a piano player in the cinema mm-hmm. uh, to, sure. to give music to it. And so when the sound came along, um, they stopped that and the director had control over the, the music. So Hitchcock was the first to use silence on purpose for dramatic That's effect. Great. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Uh, when, when films switched from, from uh, silent to talkies, um, a lot of people think a lot of artistic stuff got lost in the mix because now, you know, it's all about their conversation. But it uh, sounds like Hitchcock took a different direction. Yeah, exactly. Uh, he, he would often say that, that, uh, that films, all of a sudden, they decided just to put stage plays on the screen so that uh, you would just put a camera on the stage and, and film it. And it was all about dialogue at that point. And he was always, um, he was all about telling a story despite the dialogue so that sometimes even what is said really means nothing. Uh, he, he once said that it was like uh, dialogue should be treated as just sound coming out of people's mouths because that's <laughs> how important it is, right? And, you know, the, the cool thing about that is that that's what makes it universal. Um, that's, that's what cinematic storytelling, it, it can touch any culture. Uh, you don't have to understand the language. Well, there's always mischief going on, it seems, Um, you know, around the corner somewhere when it comes to Hitchcock films or, you know, even if, uh, well, that's what I want to ask you about. Even when characters on the screen don't know what's happening, but he fills us in. Was, Was that, was anybody else doing that at the time? Well, I don't know that, uh, I don't know that it was a common feature of films, um, I'm not claiming that he invented that. Um, he figured out that uh, the more information you give the audience early on, the more suspense they'll feel because um, they have more knowledge than the characters do. So uh, he called that the bomb theory. Um, and he, he always used the example of if you have, a, uh, if you have two people talking in a, in a restaurant – um, and you put a bomb under the table and they don't know about it, but mm. you, you show the audience, you pan the camera down to the bomb, uh, you see the wires or whatever. So the audience knows it's there, but nobody on the screen knows it's there. So they just keep talking about, you know, trivial stuff, you know? Yeah, that's great. So the audience is built up into this expectation that this bomb is going to go off. And so it kind of uh, it activates this uh, kind of instinct um, that we should, you know, reach in and and save them. Right. As the audience. But but we can't do that, of course. Um, But it's that provocation of our kind of instinct to uh, to to step in and save the day. Uh, That's that's what that's the core of what suspense really is. Mm hmm. And then, of course, the the trick to that is that the bomb should never go off. Right. You know, if the bomb does go off in the end, then uh, that's kind of boring. 
right? It's like, oh, okay. Well, we all knew that was going to happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so you, you want to surprise them with a twist uh, that for some reason at the last minute, uh, the bomb doesn't work. Not that someone actually comes in and stops it, but just through fate, just for some reason it didn't work. <laughs> you know, And that's the kind of... Uh, that's the kind of practical joke ending that uh, that he loved to include. And that feeling that you've been tricked as the audience, uh, that's what makes it fun. Yeah, even though you have more information than the characters, you're still being manipulated. Yeah, exactly. So uh, you've written a few books. Um, you're no slacker when it comes to <laughs> writing. Um, you got... Uh, how to turn your boring movie into a Hitchcock thriller. Ah, uh, yes. Now that sounds like fun. That could be great for all indie filmmakers. Uh, <laughs> you want to touch on that a little bit? Well, that was an experiment. Um, that was, it's, uh, it's an ebook, um, mm-hmm. And that is, um, that's written as if Hitchcock wrote it himself. So the idea is that, uh, he has come back from the grave to uh, to tell everybody what they're doing wrong. Uh, <laughs> you know, filmmakers filmmakers don't know what they're doing, so he's coming back to uh, to set them straight. So it's kind of a humorous uh, uh, personification of uh, Hitchcock, as if he's teaching us. <laughs> Very and cool. What it does is it kind of weaves actual things that he said over the years. Um, because he did so many interviews and he wrote so many articles in magazines. Uh, and so there's so much material out there that I basically weaved all that together into, mm-hmm. uh, into one place where it's as if he's explaining it to us. So that That's was, awesome. that was a little bit of fun. And you know, my, my next book suspense with a camera is uh, a little more of a serious a take on the same material. Cool. So yeah, I love that idea of Hitchcock uh, talking to filmmakers and, and telling them what they're doing wrong. Now you you mentioned uh, how to turn your your boring movie into a Hitchcock thriller is an ebook, so people can get that on on what Amazon or whatnot. Yeah. Cool. And uh, uh, suspense with a camera is that on Amazon as well? That is, that's in bookstores. Uh, you can get that on Amazon. Uh, you can get that in Barnes and Noble. Um, Very cool. Anywhere that they sell books. Um, my first book is uh, Between the Scenes, um, and that has nothing to do with Hitchcock. Mm. Uh, that's uh, that's also for filmmakers. That's about scene transitions and the craft behind uh, putting scenes together. So it's the, um, so it, it looks at, um, all of the elements that go into that transition from one scene to the next. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think, uh, that's great, great idea for a book. Cause at least in my opinion, transitions are basically the whole thing Yeah, between each shot is a transition. So it's like your whole movie is nothing but transitions and, uh, you know, depending on how, how you work it in, uh, affects the emotion the audience will feel. So that sounds interesting between the scenes. Yeah. And because at the end of the scene, um, 
that's where, where all the big stuff happens, right? Um, you know, that's where uh, something big has just happened and people are freaking out about it or, and they decide to do something next. That all happens at the end of the scene. So the question is, how long do you stay with that? When do you cut mm-hmm. away um, to the next scene? Uh, right. And do you put anything between those two scenes? Do you show that character get into a car and uh, drive to the next scene? Or or mm-hmm. uh, do you just cut straight to the next scene? Uh, so those are the kind of decisions that uh, I explore uh, in that book. And that was, that, was That's based, interesting. that was based on my master's thesis. Oh. So, well, I like it, man. I got, I got to check that one out. Yeah, because you know it's like you notice it sometimes if there's like a really emotional scene or something. Uh, sometimes all they can do is cut to black for a few seconds. That's the only way to sort of cleanse the palate without affecting that that earlier scene. Yeah, so I'm I'm definitely fascinated with uh, with transitions. I got to check that one out. Yeah, the cut to black is, uh, that's pretty much the most basic, aside from the cut. Um, well, yeah, the the cut to black is a, it's a, I think it's cheap, to yeah. be honest. A rookie thing is to always fade to black or whatnot. Right, because you see that in a lot of student, student films. Right, but when it's kind of like that hard cut to black for one or two seconds longer than it should be, uh, it, it just lets the audience reset. Yeah. Um, you don't see it all the time, and I, I don't really like it. Well, but, uh, it stops momentum for one. Exactly. Thing. Yeah, that's great, man. You are a busy man, and not just uh, not just writing and filmmaking, but uh, you mentioned a little bit. I think uh, you teach as well. You, you go in and uh, instruct people. Yeah, I've been doing these uh, the past couple of years. I've been doing uh, I've been doing workshops. Uh, at film festivals, mostly. Oh, great. Um, so I've done Buffalo, St. Louis, uh, Palm Springs, Los Angeles. Um, I did one a couple of times at uh, in Burbank at, uh, they call it Script Fest. It's a, it's a, it's a convention where uh, screenwriters go and pitch their projects to producers, and they also have workshops and you know classes to help them mm-hmm. uh you know learn the art of screenwriting so i've taught there um so yeah i, I teach uh, mostly now i teach the hitchcock stuff that's always the most fun and that seems to be what uh, most people are interested in mm-hmm. so uh so i i show clips and uh we we talk about uh all the fun things we saw in the clips <laughs> it's, a lot, it's a lot of fun no, it sounds like fun, and yeah. I mean, those movies still hold up, and they probably always will. Uh, a lot of it's the the cutting, like we were talking about, and the music, and a lot of it's the composition, right? I mean, his shots, they just look different than, than a lot of other people. Oh, and I wanted to ask you, is that why he didn't win an Oscar? Was he... A little ahead of his time when it came to, to filmmaking? Yeah, well, I think a lot of that has to do with uh, uh, he was perceived as kind of an entertainer. Um, mm. 
and they didn't take him seriously, especially when he was on television because uh, uh, he did yeah, his... He was a caricature uh, of right, himself. Right, yeah. exactly. Uh, and that was part of his branding. And those stories are uh, somewhat comedic anyway. Um, but there is something, something about his style, they saw it as uh, it wasn't serious filmmaking. Um, because you, you have to realize that for a long time, um, film was not seen as a serious art form. So it wasn't as, as prestigious as paintings or, um, you know, the traditional arts. So, Mm -hmm. um, film was always seen as lesser than, so, you know, you had directors like, uh, Orson Welles and, um, you know, with Citizen Kane and and those kind of films that um, that raised the bar, but uh, you know, Hitchcock was never uh, was never really seen in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not sure, you know, I'm I I'm not sure exactly why that is. I think a lot of his films uh, did not do well at the box office. Oh, really? Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. It wasn't until later on that a lot of these films were um, actually because Vertigo itself, I think, was uh, uh, disliked by the critics. And I don't think it was I don't think it did very well. But uh, of course, now Vertigo is uh, thought to be one of the best. So, uh, yeah, I think it it may be that he was ahead of his time. It may be that uh, it may be that kind of. uh, uh, kind of vaudeville circus uh, kind of a feeling that uh, uh, people just didn't take it seriously. But I should say that he was nominated uh, for a lot of films, uh, mm. especially uh, uh, during the 50s. And he was nominated for some of his uh, TV episodes as well uh, for Emmys. So while he didn't actually win, he he was nominated. Well, at least he got nominated, I guess. Yeah, yeah. but... Yeah, you know, there is kind of a I don't want to say a Disney vibe to to his work. Yeah, that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Completely inaccurate, but I think it it gets close to uh there's there's a playfulness yeah. in, in in his films. Yeah, yeah. and you I, I like how you say he was like uh a ringleader in a circus. You could almost see him with the hat on and the, and <laughs> <Yeah>. the red, <laughs> and the red jacket. But you know, even even Psycho. I mean, that was that was his most popular film, and mm-hmm. that was kind of seen as kind of like a a carnival act. You know, it was a haunted house, right? Right. And yeah. back then, back then they weren't doing that. You know, that was too silly. You know. Let me ask you about another thing about Hitchcock, because a lot of people give uh, directors uh, a lot of flack for making cameos, Tarantino especially. How do you feel about uh, Hitchcock? Doesn't he cameo a lot in, in his work? Yeah, he, he cameoed in pretty much every film he did. Uh, that's great. And that's 50. That's 50 films. Uh, so wow. that's a lot of cameos. And what what was he doing? And and did he did he piss off the uh, the establishment that way, or was it? I don't know. For some reason, I feel like he's doing it just to like maybe it was his critics. He's you know um, that was a publicity trick that he did early on uh, uh, to get people talking in the newspapers. 
Um, and it was actually uh, to the point that uh, they would be talking more about him than they would be about the actors. And <laughs> that was unheard of at the time. You know, you've got all these stars in the movies and uh, everybody's talking mm-hmm. about the director. And wow. uh, that's because of his cameos. And uh, he, uh, it was like a game of hide and seek. You know, that was his way of, uh, that was branding. That was definitely branding. Uh, mm-hmm. That was an extension of his, uh, you know, his silhouette. Um, but it was also a way of, um, it was kind of a wink and a nod to the audience. Because when you watch his films, it's not a passive experience. It's um, it's almost like a game that he has set up so that he's, he's up there on the screen and he's uh, arranging all of these you know, these, uh, tricks and practical jokes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, as the audience, we are kind of in on it. Um, so it's a game with the audience. So it's kind of like it, uh, it, it, it brings his personality into the movie. So you feel his presence, um, mm-hmm. behind the camera. So even today, um, you watch a Hitchcock film and you can still feel that. Um, you can feel his sense of humor behind the camera. And th- yeah. that's that's what those cameos were all about. Did he speak much? Did he uh, did he have, uh, you know, did he talk in the film cameos? No, it was all silent. Uh, mm. Kind of uh, he was al- it was almost like he was uh, he knew he was being watched. So it was he had this look on his face like he knew that we could see him. <laughs> so it was like he was aware that we could see him. And he was, so it was kind of like he wasn't actually in the movie. Um, he was just kind of in this uh, space all of his own. And wow. uh, But he would interact with, like, the extras. I got to look for that. What's your favorite one? Well, there's, there's, there's one where he's on a train. And there's a kid behind him that's, uh, uh, I think, hitting him with a newspaper or something or doing something to annoy him. Mm. And I think maybe he... I think I remember that. Maybe he give him a quarter or something? He swats back or something. I don't know. It's very funny. (laughs) Uh, There's one where he's he's trying to load this big uh, uh, musical instrument onto a bus. (laughs) And nice. he's having trouble getting it through the door. <laughs> it's kind of funny. <laughs> so it's always these very uh, funny gags that would make people mm-hmm. laugh when they see it. Well, Jeffrey, uh, thanks, man. Thanks for being on the podcast and uh, sharing all your Hitchcock knowledge uh, with everyone. Um, really exciting stuff, man. I'm really excited to check some of it out, uh, especially the Hitch uh, 20 documentary uh, web series. That sounds very interesting. Um but, you know, where can people find you out there uh, on Twitter? That's a good place, right? Yeah, Twitter, it's at, um, at Borgus Film, B-O-R-G-U-S-F-I-L-M. Um, and that's, you know, that's where I do kind of the daily updates. But uh, my website is Borgus.com. And uh, the Hitch 20 web series uh, that's free. Uh, just go to YouTube and uh, search for Hitch 20, and uh, you should be able to find it. There's uh, 15 episodes. Very cool. It's like three hours, three hours of content. Three hours of content, yeah. and it's free. Yeah. 
And don't forget, guys, uh, you should get his book, uh, Suspense with a Camera. I mean, it is a guide for filmmakers. And I'm also I'm directing a, a movie now um, called Not From Space. It's actually a adaptation of my uh, radio show that I was telling you about. Nice. That I you know did during college. Bringing uh, it back. Yeah. So tell me about that a little bit, if you can. So Not From Space, it's... Uh, the whole movie is a news channel. So uh, it's as if you're watching a news channel for two hours and uh, it uh, just happens to be the day that aliens show up in orbit. So it's a sci-fi uh, comedy. And uh, so you're watching, uh, you know, a morning show and the weather and uh, commercials and uh, and then you have breaking news. And so it's a very... Uh, it has a lot of suspense as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of other kind of uh, news stories that kind of weave into the plot. So uh, it's not just an alien invasion, but uh, but uh, yeah, that pretty much sums it up. Uh, it's, uh, it's something that we are uh, producing uh, kind of like a documentary. Um, and what I mean by that is that we're kind of filming parts of it um, over time so that uh, we're just kind of slowly kind of uh, collecting the pieces. Uh, hmm. We've we've finished the news correspondence scenes uh, uh, this past few months. Um, and so that's 14 actors that uh, did green screening. Uh, uh, they did their uh, correspondent uh, parts as a green screen uh, and uh, very cool. That's about 17 minutes of the film uh, that we finished. And uh, later this year, we're going to be uh, filming some press conference scenes uh, in Atlanta. And uh, so that'll be another 10 minutes. And mm-hmm. uh, then we're going to film the uh, the spaceship crash, uh, the uh, spaceship crash, um, which it crashes in a field and. Uh, People gather to uh, see what's going to happen. That's a 20-minute sequence. We're actually nice. uh, we're crowdfunding for that one. Uh, oh, so if you want to be a part of the film and uh, contribute and get behind-the-scenes content, um, top donors can actually uh, uh, come and be in the movie uh, and uh, be in the scene when the aliens uh, make first contact. Um, oh, cool. And so you can find that on Indiegogo. That's uh, that's uh, that's ending next week. So, oh, okay. So get on it, guys. <laughs> uh, April seventeenth. So yeah, that's uh, and eventually um, we'll finish it off in a news studio, and uh, we'll have a movie. So that's great. It's a lot of fun. I love the concept. Mm-hmm. Yeah, concept's great, and it sounds like. Uh, you're bringing your suspense to the Star Trek nerd. Exactly. <laughs> kind of mixing those two worlds together. Yes. Thank you, Jeffrey. Uh, this was a great episode, very informative. I look forward to uh, hearing more from you. And, and, and when, you're, when your film's shot, uh, come back and talk about it. Sure, yeah. Thanks for having me on. Well, that's that. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Indie Film Grit Podcast. Feel free to go to our website and check out the show notes. 
IndieFilmGrit.com. Follow us on Twitter at IndieFilmGrit and subscribe to us on iTunes. Well, I should really wrap this up, but before I go, let me ask you something. Do you have the courage, the passion, and the perseverance to make indie films? Do you have enough indie film grit? Thank you.